Hello, everybody. I'm Bob Luz, president and CEO of the Massachusetts Restaurant Association, and I want to welcome you to Together We Win, the MRA podcast. So let's get going. Well, Steve Clark joining me here at uh, the taping of the MRA podcast, Together We Win, with the turkey in the oven. It is our November Thanksgiving edition of Together We Win. Steve, how big will your turkey be? Well, you have a smaller crowd, so it's probably, uh, you know, 14 pounds, 13 pounds. You know, we don't, we don't, I know you welcome many from, from all walks of life into the, into the family diner, and, and you have a much bigger turkey than we do. Uh, I tell you, though, this is my favorite time of year. I love going out the night before Thanksgiving, patronizing a couple uh, watering holes. I love going out to dinner on Friday after shopping, maybe go out to dinner again on the weekend. You know, it's just a nice weekend of eating, so it's, it's really my favorite time of the year. You know me, I don't like to eat at all. You, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's very foreign to me. Uh, being a head of the restaurant association and not enjoying eating, you know, 24-7. I, you know, I, I, I do have to sleep a little bit. But maybe uh, a beverage, maybe, maybe one. Maybe one or two beverages. So where do you go? What's your favorite watering hole in the greater Ashland area the night before Thanksgiving? You know, we'll, we'll, we'll patronize a couple different places. We like to do uh, a little bit of a, a, a bar crawl, if you will, on, on Thanksgiving Eve, check in with all the different establishments, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, TJ's or the Ashland Ale House or any of the other fine dining, fine drinking establishments fine in the Metro West. Uh, but we always try to have a good time. And, you know, we weren't able to do it the last, uh, last year. Uh, that was kind of discouraged, and, and a lot of people did not go out on that night. So hopefully, we are able to go out. It was and, very and discouraged. Have some fun. Very discouraged. Uh, you were almost looked at uh, negatively if you went out. Uh, you know, it's funny. Uh, Stones Public House downtown Ashland, Another right great next spot, Ashland. right next to the uh, train station. The building tr- uh, shakes every time the train goes by. It's an enjoyable experience. I I grew up in Framingham, as Steve well knows, and. Uh, played football Framingham North High. Back then it was uh, North South, Keefe Tech, and Marion. North High football rules. North High football did rule, but now there's just Framingham High School. But uh, certainly the year after my graduation from Framingham North, uh, the tradition became that we would actually go to Stone's Public House, downtown Ashland, pre-gaming the Thanksgiving Day game. So they opened at 6 a.m., uh, and we we enjoyed beverages up until 10 o'clock kickoff, uh, which was just, uh, <laughs> that was a whole new level of uh, craziness back when I was growing up. Uh, as if Thanksgiving needed more consumption oh, added to it, boy. you might as well start early and do oh, something boy. in the morning and then lead into the game and come home and have more. I don't think they're open. Well, actually, TJ's, I think, is actually open for breakfast uh, cocktails uh, before the game still. So uh, it is a tradition that lives on in Ashland, despite the uh, the different world that we live in today. TJ's has cornered that market on the Thanksgiving morning uh, cocktails before yeah. heading over to Hopkinton or Ashland. Yeah. Well, we do, we have a, uh, uh, do we have a big bird? Uh, we have sort of the land of misfit toys that comes to the Luz household on Thanksgiving. It's sort of anybody in the two families, the two sides of the family that doesn't have anywhere else to go comes, uh, comes to our house. But it's always, it's always a great take. You know, the thing about holidays is I don't care. 
who I'm with, but family is is just fun. And whether it's my family, Anne's family, or you know friends of ours' family, it it, it doesn't matter. It's just about the group that gets around the, the table together, enjoys that time, talks about sports, talks about politics, yells, argues. Uh, and enjoys great food and great beverage. That's what it's all about to me, and uh, it's exciting time. And hopefully, uh, David Luz is able to join you at at the dinner. Um, Ooh, you know, he's a, a future guest on on today's podcast. Yes. I wonder if there'll be anything that comes up in this podcast that'll need to be addressed at the dinner oh, table. I I, I I would be willing to bet we will. It'll be the topic of conversation around that table uh, come come November. But uh, we, that remains to be seen. So. So, Steve, uh, today, um, who do you have as a guest? I, I forget. We uh, have no, someone known to us very well, Jennifer Almeida. She is our Director of Education for the MRA Education Foundation. She does a fantastic job with the kids and the education component of the MRA. Jen has uh, been a terrific addition to our team, as Steve well knows. Um, and, you know, she brought a background to this. She's a, a former t- educator herself. Uh, has so much passion, so much passion for uh, the kids, the next generation of our industry and uh, getting them the tools to succeed. She fights for them at every step of the, of the way. Uh, she's uh, done a terrific job uh, on uh, raising uh, revenues in order to support those kids and keeping our, um, you know, incredibly the last three years, keeping our, our, our uh, scholarship uh, level at $100,000 that are awarded each year, even in the worst of times that our industry's ever seen. And she's been a, a real great addition to the team. So I'm glad you're going to be talking about her, talking to her today. And, and she has a lot to talk about, no, no question about it. It's going to be great. And, you know, the Ed Foundation is is doing all they can. You know, the biggest issue facing the industry right now continues to be labor and just labor, growing, labor, that, labor. growing that workforce development pipeline, getting more people, showing the value of the industry and, and bringing people to the door. And she's into TikTok. And she's into TikTok. She's t- she's I think we need the- a Bob Luz TikTok. We do we need a Bob Luz TikTok. There's Together no we question can about- podcast brought to you by Bob Luz's yeah, TikTok. There we go. That'll be thing of uh, that'll be an ugly thing. Uh, Kerry Miller will be having uh, a guest that uh, um, you know I you know he's been he's been kicking around the entire time that I've been at the MRA. Uh, Matt Camillari, who's now managing director uh, for Real Food Consulting, uh, he started with Ed Doyle. Back in 2013, the same time that I started with uh, the MRA here. Uh, And it's been an an incredible journey for me to see uh, Matt grow along with Real Food Consulting and Real Food, Ed Doyle. Uh, They've been a great partner here to the MRA. They've been a great partner to so many restaurateurs up out of the uh, greater Boston and and, um, and then it started to grow to New England landscape and now it's national and international and, and they've got a, a, a terrific affiliation um, with uh, Troon Golf and uh, uh, it, it's exciting times for real food. So we'll look forward to speaking to Matt uh, about that. Um, and then as Steve indicated, I have a, a really special guest that I'm looking forward to today. Um, you know, this gentleman is someone that I've known since literally he was born. Um, and, uh, you know, I've seen him grow as a uh, brother, as a uh, friend. Uh, but then, uh, really excitingly, uh, I've seen him follow me into 
um, the restaurant industry and uh, and really do some great things. And, you know, Dave Luz uh, is an example of what our industry is all about. Uh, have we tried to have Dave Luz on in the past? I, I feel like we tried to have him once we, one we or two might times. Ha- we might have tried to have him in once before. There was an incident at the last taping. I may have to bring that up uh, as we go forward uh, in the interview today, we'll see. Um, we'll see. That's a that's a good point, a poignant point to bring up, Steve. But uh, stay tuned for that. Uh, we will try and see if we can get Dave with it. Um, but he's a he is a really uh, terrific example of what our industry is all about. Uh, an industry that you can start as a dishwasher and become and go all the way to the boardroom or ownership in in our industry. Um, despite not having, um, you know, higher education uh, or, um, or, you know, or starting off as being able to speak English. I mean, our industry will, will teach you all, uh, all the tools you need to succeed. And, and it's really allowed people to do that. And David is someone who came out of college, really didn't know what he wanted to do, moved out to LA to chase another career that we'll talk a little bit about. Um, and somehow found his way into this industry and has gone to uh, great heights. And uh, we'll talk about uh, his uh, travels through a a national chain, uh, the Cheesecake Factory, uh, through an independent uh, uh, owner for for a short period of time, and and now out to something exciting in Arizona. So it gives me great pleasure to welcome uh, my brother, my friend, my mentor, my compadre, uh, Dave Luz, to the show. Thanks for having me on, Bob. David Luz, live from your home, your 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 second home, I guess. But the second home meaning it's not a, 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 a vacation home by any stretch of the imagination. In Phoenix, Arizona, where it's very early in the morning. Even though this show won't air until the end of uh, October, almost before Halloween. Last night was a big night, David Luz, wasn't it? It was. It was. Did you hear me screaming all the way from Phoenix, Arizona? I was at Fenway Park, and I could hear you screaming at the Red Sox-Yankees game, and what a game it was. Yeah, no, one for the ages. It was. Uh, it's always great. October baseball, excited to be in the playoffs. Can't wait. Tampa Bay, bring it on. There it is. And again, hopefully at this point, when people are listening to it, we've we've erased the Tampa Bay uh, Rays, and uh, the Tampa Rays, rather, and we've moved on to whoever else it is and you know, on our way to a world series again, but you know, we get ahead of ourselves. Dave Luz, um, yeah. terrific individual, someone I've known my, literally my entire life, your entire life. Well, no, I haven't known you my entire life since you are my younger brother. Uh, you've known me your entire life and, and certainly looked up to me the entire time. Um, <laughs> it's hard not to, but, <laughs> uh, Besides living in Phoenix, Arizona, let's talk a little bit about your background and experience uh, in this industry as a person, and and because you have a great story, and and I and I kid around, uh, but I am excited to have you on the show this morning. Uh, you know, uh, you were like me, uh, grew up in obviously the greater Boston area, went to school, and when you came out of school, you were bouncing around working in restaurant jobs, weren't you? Yeah, I worked at a bunch of different restaurant jobs during school, after school, and uh, just different roles, servers, bartender positions. Yeah, you pretty much had a, like a job every month and a half or two months back then, didn't you? 
there was a time when that happened. Yes, but I got it got much better, and I had jobs for longer amounts of time. Yeah, Thank no, you. I know you did. I know you did. You were finding your way. You were finding your way, and and um, you know, along the same way. And again, uh, not everybody knows this from the industry, uh, but you had a uh, you had a passion and a dream that you were following. Uh, tell me a little bit about that, if you would. Yeah, I was trying to break in as a screenwriter. So uh, my wife and I, who we had just gotten married back then uh, in 1993, Sue Su- and I. Sula's wonderful uh, woman, clearly yeah. makes you a better person. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah. And I just said we got married in 1993, which hopefully she won't catch. We got married in 1991. But I we moved out to Los Angeles probably three months after getting married. And um, uh, and I was pursuing a career as a screenwriter. I I had uh, made some contacts. I was taking some classes, and in the meantime, I was working. And in 1993, I got a job at the Cheesecake Factory, which I had been trying to get a job for two years uh, when we moved uh, out to Los Angeles. I just couldn't I couldn't get in. There was there was a lot of demand for a job at the Cheesecake Factory in Marina Del Rey, and uh, I could not get in there. But I finally did in '93 so, as a uh, as a server. And and at that point, Dave, how many restaurants did Cheesecake Factory have? You know, I, I always say we had five. I, I believe that that is the number. There was um, four in the Los Angeles area and then one in Washington, D.C., in Baltimore, actually. Um, the company went public in 91, uh, which was, or 1992, which was a really um, early time to go public. But because they had such high volume sales, their average unit sales, back then was $10 million restaurant. They were able to do it. They raised a bunch of money and they went public. Um, and I joined them just after that. And so uh, you started as a server. You were uh, doing your thing, waiting tables, making great money back then uh, because they did just a little bit of volume out in Marina Del Rey. Uh, doing your thing in writing and continuing to make those contacts. And um, how does it evolve to the point where you end up uh, starting a management with them? So I worked for a couple of years um, as a server in Marina Del Rey. Um, and uh, they'd asked me early on if I wanted to be a manager, which was unusual at that time. They really didn't usually go internally at that time. They had kind of the cream of the crop that they were picking, but they knew that there was growth coming up. They knew I was a little older. They pulled me aside soon after I started. And I just, I wasn't interested in that time. I had a lot of stuff going on, but I kept that conversation alive with the general manager who was, uh, who had asked me, and then the general manager who replaced them. And it just kind of kept going. And a couple of years later, actually, we were on a family vacation in Aruba with uh, my parents, my entire family. Um, you were in the industry. I can't remember what your role was, whether you were a recruiter at that point or not, but you knew of Cheesecake Factory. And I had talked to you and said, you know, I, I, I need to get some more skills. I don't want to just not have any kind of business skills and you said the best way to do it was to uh, get in the restaurant industry. You can learn to run a business from top to bottom. And you said Cheesecake's going to blow up and you really need to get involved with them. And so when I returned from that vacation, I had a talk with the people in charge. And they um, they offered me a job instantly as a manager. And uh, that, was, that was around Mother's Day 1995 that I started in my training as a um, manager with the Cheesecake Factory. That's how I got into it. Yeah. And, um, you know, at the time, to your point, uh, I had moved to Kansas City and I was um, I was uh, running uh, HR and actually at that point I was running recruiting for Applebee's International and they had just started to take off uh, as well. Uh, And uh, and that's what we talked about. You said, you know, look, Dave, you got to you got to 
you got to follow your passion. You got to keep going, but you also got to have a backup plan. And and these guys seem to like you. And uh, if they keep knocking at your door, don't let that opportunity pass you by. And you know what a great decision you made to to really uh, take 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 a step and say, okay, let me let me learn some skills here, and but continue to follow my passion. And uh, I give you all the credit in the world. But it's it's a great point, and I, I talked about this briefly in the intro. It's a great uh, example of how people can uh, start in this industry at any level, uh, uh, you know, a dishwasher, busser, server, and grow to any any point in their career that they want to. Uh, people grow from the dish room to the boardroom and everywhere in between uh, all, all through our industry. You've seen it, I've seen it. And I think for both of us, that's one of the passions we have about it. We, we, we It allows us to see the the really cool aspects of people come forward and grow careers and, and grow for their families. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, it's unbelievable. And you, you know, just remember the scope of it. I started when Cheesecake had five restaurants. I was with them. Um, I mean, I'm still with them, but watch them grow to over 200 restaurants. And so as you get bigger and bigger in scale, you just you can't sustain that growth by always going externally. It has to come internally. And Cheesecake Factory in particular has so many stories of people uh, growing um, from staff positions into uh, leadership roles. One of my favorite stories of that that I share with people often, um, one of my general managers uh, that I used to work with in, um, in uh, the Boston area, uh, started as a, a, a bus, uh, a busser out of college. He was, uh, in Providence. He started as a busser, um, just part-time gig, loved it, went into management. Now the general manager of the busiest cheesecake factory, uh, in Boston, in Burlington, Massachusetts. That's Mike Carey, fabulous guy, visit his restaurant. It's wonderful. Um, but it's a great success story and that plays itself out over and over again. We're starting to See that happen now at uh, Flower Child, the uh, the brand that I'm running for Fox Restaurants in um, in Phoenix. Well, that, so let's do, take a second, real quickly. So you you get into management, you came back to New England uh, to open up the the uh, Boston market for Cheesecake Factory. Um, uh, ended up running the restaurant in Chestnut Hill, uh, and then running this whole region for for a long time. Tell me about that move from from uh, back here and to single management to multi-unit management? Yeah, I didn't come back. They had opened a restaurant in Chestnut Hill in uh, 1995 and um, in, this, in the Christmas in 1995. It was the first uh, restaurant in, in the Boston area. And, um, and it would, they just had a hard time staffing it. They couldn't get people to move to New England. And they knew I was from Boston. They kept asking me to come back. Uh, soon I had had uh, our oldest son, Ben, uh, and we just knew it was time uh, to go back. We had him in 1996, and we thought we should probably be around family. So we came back in 97. I came back as what Cheesecake calls as a senior manager, which is like one level below an assistant general manager. I, I was able to run a shift on my own. Um, I ended up working in that restaurant uh, until 2005, uh, became general manager of that restaurant in 2000 when my boss uh, left to go run what was at that time and for many years the busiest restaurant in the brand in Las Vegas and um, became GM in 2000, stayed there till 2005, went to what we call our flagship uh, in downtown Boston. It wasn't the first restaurant, uh, but it was no, no doubt the most uh, 
outstanding location that we have when you go inside it's just a absolutely beautiful yeah. restaurant Prudential, yeah beautiful. It's, just, it's just beautiful david overton the founder and chairman of cheesecake factory always takes time to walk slowly through that restaurant because he's so proud of it it's just absolutely stunning and um uh, I went there, was working there from 2005 to 2007. They had approached me about doing a regional position. I had three young children. I didn't, you know, at that time, regionals were all over the place with cheesecake. I didn't want to travel um, as much as they were, would have been required. I just didn't think it was fair to them or, or good for my family. And um, finally, in 2007, they wanted to base, there, there was going to be eight restaurants around Boston. They wanted to based two regionals in Boston, split the area in Boston with four restaurants each and give us each a fly, fly region. And I was going to be taking Boston and uh, Long Island. There were three restaurants on Long Island. Um, and I was all set to take that job. And mo almost like moments before that job got taken, there was an opening down in Florida for another regional position. And the person I was going to split Boston with wanted to move down there. So they ended up saying, hey, we're going to make one region. It's right around Boston. Here you go. And I suddenly had uh, what was uh, soon to be eight restaurants uh, within 55 minutes of my home, that worked uh, which out. is really kind of unheard of. Yeah, that for, worked for, out pretty good for, for, for yeah, you. Yeah, it, it worked out great. Yeah, yeah. I was really fortunate. Biggest thing that you saw going from single unit to multi-unit? Biggest challenge for you? Oh, people. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, it starts with people like it is. It, there are, were a couple times in the growth of Cheesecake Factory and I understand that this time I was in the thick of it. I was a general manager in Cheesecake Factory where uh, David Overton and the, the leadership team at that time would deliberately slow down growth because they knew they needed more quality people. It's just hard as you're growing to sustain that. And people, great people lead to the thing that dissipates the most when you grow, as you know, um, is culture. If you're not super protective of that culture, um, as you add more people on, as you get bigger, as things become more complex operationally because there's more units, that gets kind of ripped away. Cheesecake Factory um, found a way to grow big, hold on to people, and maintain its culture. I think that's why it was super successful. Um, and then, you know, any, any independent restaurant operator will tell you, it's really hard to run one restaurant. It gets more difficult to run two restaurants. And at three restaurants, the wheels start to come off if you don't have things in place. So we had created a lot of systems back in probably 2000, just before we started exploding, to make sure that our restaurants were really systematized and had all the things in place that they needed to in regards to problem solving. And that, that was an amazing effort to watch that happen. Well, and I think, you know, you, you hit the nail on the head and, you know, I've seen your career grow and, uh, and I'm not, I'm not bashful about saying you, you surrounded yourself with great people. Uh, you weren't afraid to hire people that were as good, if not better than you. Uh, and you gave them sort of the, the bumper guards to go out and uh, make their own uh, future and make their own decisions, um, not overmanage them, but but give them the tools to succeed. And I think that's really played out well for you. So uh, I congratulate you on that. David, I'm going to have to cut you off now because it appears the lieutenant governor, who I didn't think was going to be calling <laughs> you, in for this, is is calling in on the, on the other line. And um, 
you are you are Matt Damon me right now. I am not you, Matt Damoning you. You are Matt Damon me right now. I am not your you Jimmy have, Kimmel. You haven't started a war. I am telling your crowd right now. <laughs> Last time, this guy, my brother, called me out of the blue. I was probably like riding a bike or something. I'm like, hey, what's going on? And he says, hey, I'm in a jam. Uh, Kevin Euclid hasn't shown up, and uh, we need it. We need a guest. And I'm going to start interviewing. I was like, okay, started doing it, and then. He did exactly what he did right now. He cut me off to go to Kevin Euclid because Kevin Euclid. So now the lieutenant governor's on, and you're doing it again. I will never come on your show. I'm coming to your house. I'm going to throw rocks through your window. And and I'm telling you something. You better keep this rant on the show because it's over. I, I can't believe this is happening. David, David, chill, chill down. It was just a joke. It was just a joke. (laughs) That was classic. Classic. Uh, You can see we don't get along well at all. That was perfect. Come on. Was that the? uh, You are so easy. I got you so well on that one. I know. I'm gullible. You've always been able to get me. All right. So let's get back to this quickly. Everything's going along swimmingly with cheesecake. They yeah. love you. You love them. You make a decision one morning. You wake up and say what? I uh, I decided to leave Cheesecake Factory, which was a shock to everybody at Cheesecake Factory because I've been with them so long. Um, and I absolutely love the company. I obviously love it to this day. Um, I had got connected with some people at a company called Clover Food Lab, um, fast food startup in um, Cambridge, Massachusetts. And... Um, Air Air Muir, Air Muir, really. Air Muir, great guy. Yeah. Um, Great company, great brand. If you've never visited Clover Food Lab, uh, look it up. Um, Clover is a tremendous company with really great people, and and the food's delicious. The most important thing, the food is absolutely delicious. But I bumped into him, and, you know, we kind of went back and forth for like, I don't know, might have been been six months, four or five months just chatting about things. I, he basically was looking for somebody to help him grow his company. He had eight food trucks at that time, a few brick and mortar locations and wanted to uh, grow it. And, you know, after talking with him and talking with some of um, the investors that were with him about what air wanted to do, I decided to join him. And, and, and uh, it was really because as much as I love cheesecake factory, I really wanted to get into a space where it was fast casual that, if you remember where 2015, that space was sort of exploding, upscale, um, fast food. And I wanted to do something that was good for you in regards to nutrition or the planet. And Air's company is founded around uh, uh, doing good things for the world. Um, uh, when he started it, he has a great story. I won't go into the whole thing. But he basically wanted to make, make an environmental impact with food. His food was delicious. Um, he never built it as vegetarian or healthy, but it was both of those things. He just built it as uh, delicious food. Yeah, and um, went to join him, and I was with him for about sixteen months. Yeah, and, and again, things um, in, in your mind, things never swayed with cheesecake. An opportunity came back up. They reached out to you, wanted you to come back, and you did. Um, yeah. and you know, it, it felt like you were back home again. I know that. And, and I know it was a, a tough decision for you, but certainly the right one in it. That time I know really, uh, got you to think 
more entrepreneurially, uh, made you look at the business from a, uh, you know from 50,000 feet instead of 25,000 feet, really rounded you out well, and got you prepared for your new opportunity, which uh, talk a little bit about what Cheesecakes asked you to do and, and tell us a little bit about Flower Child in Arizona. Yeah, so, um, so ironically, when I had come back to Cheesecake Factory in 2016, they had made an investment in a company called Fox Restaurant Concepts owned by Sam Fox in Phoenix, Arizona. And um, Sam's company is super cool. He has about 10 different brands, uh, 50 restaurants, and um, uh, Cheesecake had invested in a concept called North Italia. And um, on top of that, this they didn't intend to do this, but they saw a company called, uh, a brand called Flower Child uh, when they were in Phoenix too. And Flower Child was much younger than North Italia, um, kind of just starting out, uh, but Cheesecake liked it. It was in the fast, casual, healthy space. So Cheesecake gives them uh, a bunch of money to go grow those concepts with the idea that you'll grow them for three years at North Italia, and then we'll buy it outright. You'll grow Flower Child for five years, and then we'll buy it outright, providing that it grows the way it's supposed to, and you hit all the metrics. And that's kind of how Sam has run his company. He doesn't want to be a publicly held company. His model has been um, uh, create these super cool, innovative um, uh, brands with delicious food where people are dying to go to, get it to a certain number, spin it off, and sell it to somebody. He owns another concept called True Food, mm-hmm. uh, which uh, some of your some of your uh, listeners may have been to. But yeah. um, so Flower Child was there. Um, they knew I loved the fast casual space Cheesecake did. They knew that um, I was really excited about uh, doing healthy food. Flower Child was both of us. I started meeting with Fox in about 2017. I went out to meet the leadership team. I didn't get to meet Sam at that time. And that was just kind of a meet and greet. Hi, how are you? How's it going? They wanted uh, uh, Cheesecake wanted me to see um, where Fox was because I had not been to Phoenix in a long time and what it was doing. And of course, I left that meeting, and I it was just it was really everything I wanted to do when I left Cheesecake Factory. It was a small, nimble uh, company that pivots on a dime um, and does really great things. And so. I told them I'd be interested in learning more. I told Cheesecake that. And then 2019, out of the blue, uh, uh, my my boss, the president of Cheesecake Factory, David Gordon, said, I want you to go out there again, but I think I'm putting somebody in there now. So this is more serious. We came out, looked at it. Uh, Sue came with me at this time to see Phoenix. We had to try to figure out how to, how to um, uh, live in Phoenix while our three early 20-something boys were not going to move with us. They were in Boston. So we figured that out. And um, Uncle Bob and keeps an eye on them. Yeah, Uncle Bob keeps an eye on them. Um, and we decided to move out here. And I made that decision in May. And then in August, Cheesecake, instead of just purchasing North Italia, they made a deal with Sam Fox and bought his whole company. And so now Fox Restaurant Concepts operates as an independent subsidiary of Cheesecake Factory. And I always compare it to um, it's like Disney buys Pixar or Marvel or Lucasfilm, the Star Wars people, and says, we're Disney, we make this thing, Um, we own you, but we want you to keep making your thing. Keep making Marvel movies, keep making Pixar movies, keep making Star Wars movies. So Sam Fox really operates independently uh, with this this relationship, Um, but he was purchased, you know, six months before the pandemic. 
So he's uh, very fortunate in that regards. But uh, but it's a great relationship for both Cheesecake Factory and Fox because uh, Fox is an incredible at innovating yeah. restaurant concepts and Cheesecake's great at scaling them. I love the way you wrap that up and bring it back to the movie genre and and, and, yeah. and make it all about movies. That's really, really cool. And by the way, before we leave, I do want to point – before I get to the lightning round and I got to move there, I do want to point out you ultimately did make a movie, uh, one of your screenplays. Yeah, let's, let's leave it there. Let's, yeah. let's leave it there. Let's leave. All right, David. Great stuff, especially, you know, when I cut you off because the lieutenant governor was waiting. But yeah, uh, we're going to now move to the lightning round because I'm out of time here. And the lightning round is brought to us by our friends at Sprague Energy. Sprague Energy has been ta- saving restaurateurs, hoteliers, money on on all the utilities uh, for many, many years. They're great partners to the industry. If you don't, if you haven't spoken to Sprague Energy, please give them a call. Give a, give Kevin or Steven a call. Uh, they'll be terrific to help you. All right, David, you ready for the lightning round? This is this is very I'm important. Ready. You ready? All right, here we go. Medium rare, medium, well done, or vegan? Medium rare. Medium rare is, of course, the correct answer. Very good. <laughs> Seinfeld, Modern Family, or The Office? The Office. Even though your three boys know every episode of Seinfeld by heart. That's an interesting answer. I know your answer is Seinfeld. Yeah, that's that's Saturday morning. You don't have anything to do. It's just you and Sue. And as we know, the dog, the great dog, Griffin, is not with you because a German shepherd can't survive in Arizona. Um, What do you and Sue do? Uh, We go out for a hike uh, on Piesta with Peak near our house. Beautiful, beautiful. What is your favorite restaurant when you come back into the Boston area? Myers and Chang. Myers and Chang. Joanne will love that answer. Christopher will love that answer. Tom Brady or Bill Belichick? Especially great question this week. Oh, this is brutal. Um, Well, Tom Brady, except when he's playing the Patriots. So Tom Brady, except when it's Bill Belichick. That's a great answer, Dave. Really thank you for that one. Jesus Christ. All right. Gordon Ramsay, Ming Tsai, or Julia Child? Uh, Ming Tsai. Ming Tsai. And the next Boston sports team to go on a duck boat tour parade. Oh, the Boston Red Sox, man, of course. Ooh, doggy, you're calling for us to make the run. And then this will be playing in October, so you're either a visionary or a loser. <laughs> I'll be a visionary. You'll be a visionary. Dave Luz, one of my favorite all-time guests, You know, at least probably the top ten at this point, in, in the top ten all right. of all my guests. I think I've had nine, um, but it's been really exciting having you on. I appreciate it. I'm glad the Lieutenant Governor did not cut in. Oh, that was a classic. Thank you very much. It was great to be on. And just uh, uh, everybody, this podcast is phenomenal. I listen every time it, it uh, comes out, and I can't wait for uh, I can't wait for this this uh, this issue, Bob. The rant will make it. Dave Luz, thank you. Take care. All right. Thanks so much. Bye. I'm Steve Clark, Vice President of Government Affairs for the Mass Restaurant Association, and this is live with From the Hill. We are joined on the Together We Win MRA podcast by Jen Almeida, Director of Education for the Mass Restaurant Association Ed Foundation. Jen, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, Steve. We appreciate it. We appreciate all your efforts at the MRA and everything you do to position us in the education world. Talk to us a little bit about the education world and what they're going through uh, coming out of the pandemic and some of the challenges that uh, some of our education partners have had to deal with. Absolutely. So obviously, the last really year and a half has been extremely difficult for many of our educators. Um, In March of 2020, they were sent home and 
told that they had to come up with a way to teach culinary education virtually, which is a kind of a head scratcher. So they they rallied and they bought ring lights, they bought cameras. We had veteran teachers 20 years trying to figure out the technology on how to teach these kids virtually. And it was so impressive with everything that they did, but it was a very, very difficult year. And they had to do it for a full year after that. So now our educators are mostly in person with their students, which is exciting, but there's still a lot of issues that they're having to face, you know, slash budgets with, with, um, at, the addition of certain technologies that now they're not using as often. Uh, just like many restaurants, they're facing distributor issues. They're not able to get a lot of the materials that they would need to teach these students. And they're then facing the know, same. They're, they're facing the same challenges yeah. that the restaurants are facing: supply chain challenges, uh, et cetera, money challenges, et cetera. It's it's unbelievable. It's it's, it's the same, but. You know, it, and part of it is it's the education of our students and the education of the future of our industry. So sometimes it's really difficult for these teachers to provide quality education just for the lack of supplies and support that they receive. You know, we talk a lot about trying to uh, actually we talk a lot about the ProStar program in general. But, you know, give us a couple minutes on the ProStar program. What exactly does that mean? And, you know, who, to, to the to the untrained ear, when, when they say ProStar program, what are they hearing and what are they learning about? So ProStar is actually a national curriculum. It stems from the National Restaurant Association Education Foundation. It typically is a two-year program that covers all aspects of the hospitality industry, both front of the house and back of the house. And it offers the students an opportunity to receive some certifications. The main one being a certificate of achievement. This is a nationally recognized credential and it exemplifies to an employer the skills that the students have, have been able to obtain. They've been able to master uh, the skills that really are needed to be successful in the restaurant industry. It's awesome. And it, and it, it all, it culminates in Massachusetts as a, a particular, uh, particularly fun competition. Actually, I think it was the last event we were able to have in 2020 before the world came down uh, is the pro star competition. Uh, we ha- it, it's at a great venue. It has great guests. Tell us a little bit about the pro star competition. Well, the ProStart competition is one of my favorite days of the year. So there's actually two competitions that are part of this. One is a culinary competition and one is a hospitality management competition. For the culinary competition, the students must cook a appetizer, an entree, and a dessert in one hour on two in, in our state level, because our beautiful venue is so wonderful, uh, two induction burners, no electronics. Everything has to be done by hand, um, which is the dishes that these students are able to create are just outstanding. And then on the management side, the students must create a restaurant concept, including blueprints, restaurant design. They must design a 12-item menu as well as including pricing and costing. They must do a SWOT analysis as well as come up with two marketing tactics. And one of them cannot be, we made a post on Instagram or we made a post on Facebook. It actually has to be a real marketing tactic which is a lot of work. 
It's unbelievable. It's an amazing day. It's it, As you said, it's one of your favorite days of the year. It's also one of our favorite days of the year at the MRA. I've had the pleasure of being a, a timing judge for a few years, and it's just amazing the work and effort that the students put into to making this presentation. And you can see the sweat coming down their brow, and they're super focused on what they're trying to do. And, of course, we have it at Gillette Stadium. So it, it's a, it's an unbelievable experience for those kids to come out and uh, you know practice at such a great venue and, and learn from, from one of the professional judges that we have that you – that you recruit to come and, and offer their insight and volunteer their time. It really is a great day. And I mean, you can't get a better venue. I mean, go Patriots, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, a couple of the other things that, you know, we work on uh, as an industry is, uh, you know, recruiting employees and, and working toward um, getting more employees in, into our industry. And the Education Foundation focuses a lot on workforce training. Uh, what are some of those trainings and what are some some opportunities for, for, for growing our workforce? The biggest issue out there right now is labor and, and getting more labor. And, and how is the Ed Foundation helping with, with some of those programs? So um, some programs that we do offer are we have an apprenticeship program that we've been able to develop in partnership with our member services, uh, Mr. Carrie Miller. And we have two actual apprentice programs. We have a one-year program that's a little front of house focused where they the participant obtains uh, management skills to be able to manage a restaurant, manage multiple locations. Um, and they we partner with community colleges. So these participants also receive some credits towards a, an associate's degree. And then they receive all of their serve safe trainings. They receive all of their, um, any trainings that are required by the state. And really, it's all on the dime of the, of the Mass Restaurant Association or the state through our grant funding. And it's, that is a really great program. We've had about 20 participants that have graduated from that program. All of those participants have, you know, seen improvements in their job. Some have received, um, uh, why am I blanking on this word? It's always how it works. <laughs> Some have seen promotions within their organizations. Um, and others have been able to move on to different uh, organizations in better positions. And right now we are in the process of developing and it launched in September, a two year uh, apprenticeship program in partnership with Bunker Hill Community College. This apprenticeship program will actually result in an associate's degree for the participant at very, very little cost to the participant, if any. And this one is a culinary based apprenticeship. So they're going to learn the skills to be able to manage the back of the house and be able to develop rest, uh, menus and be able to do P&Ls and to order do orders and being really able to manage a kitchen. Um, and we're really excited about this one, but this is a two year project. So we'll, we'll have to wait two years to, to see uh, what happens to these participants. It's really an unbelievable partnership between uh, MRA employers and the state. Uh, we, you know, we talk about the cost of education and trying to grow the knowledge in our industry and being able to do that while working at the same time and coming out with the necessary degree without having to take huge student loans is huge. And it's really beneficial to to the future of our industry and, and, and those that want to continue to and, and learn and grow in the industry. So so it's unbelievable. Uh, the most impressive number I, I think about when I hear about the Ed Foundation is the, the generosity of the scholarships. Uh, let us know. Uh, last I heard, the number was at least a million dollars in scholarships that have been given out over the last decade. Uh, I'm sure that's climbing. Uh, talk about uh, the scholarship program that you uh, that you are the shepherd and you are in charge of. So I actually think we're at about 1.2 for uh, over the last 10 years for scholarship funds that have been given out. Uh, annually, our our members are extremely supportive of of the future of the industry, and they've been donating scholarship funds for Massachusetts students. And we've been 
over the last, at least the last four years that I've been working for the MRA, we've been given out an average of 30 scholarships a year, ranging from $2,000 to $5,000. And this year, we actually were able to give out an $8,000 scholarship, which is incredible. Um, and these are given to students from Massachusetts who are pursuing a degree in the in a hospitality-related field, whether it's, you know, culinary or hotel management. We really, you know, it's just hospitality related. And some of these kids have received $4,000 uh, over the course of four years, all the way up to eight or 10, depending on, you know, which scholarships they're able to receive each year. And, you know, some kids, we've had some kids come back to us and say, this is the reason we, we were able to go to college. If it wasn't for the scholarship from the Mass Restaurant Association Ed Foundation, I wouldn't have been able to go to college. So that is really an amazing thing to hear that the support of our industry professionals supporting the future of the industry is just, it's just outstanding. It's truly amazing. If pro start is our favorite day at the association, I think scholarship gala at night is probably our favorite night. Uh, just hearing the stories of the kids of how they've have navigated uh, the, the, the high school or college program, the, the pride on the, on the face of the parents when they attend the event. And, and it's just been unbelievable. And as you mentioned, it has been a game changer for some where, where it truly has allowed them to go to college or some actually made a college uh, decision based on it where uh, previous colleges may have been out of reach, but the scholarship brought it back into uh, back into focus and they were able to apply there. So it, it, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. The kids are awesome. And uh, actually we've been at the MRA long enough now where we're starting to see some of our scholarship recipients graduate college, come into the industry and, and, they're blazing their own trail and just being phenomenal. And, and, you know, the future is bright with, with our industry and it's, it's going to be awesome. And, um, it's awesome. I actually just saw one of our, uh, scholarship recipients the other day during pro start weekend, I went and made a stop at 110 girl in, um, Marlboro and one of our former recipients is now a manager over there, Perfect. which is just so exciting to see that they're able to, you know, graduate college, make these connections and, and have a successful career. It truly is. Uh, it, it, it's great. It's a, it's a tribute to you. It's a tribute to their hard work. It's a tribute to the association. It's a tribute to their employers uh, that have uh, shown a lot of uh, value in them and, and, and shows you the value of ProStart. And so, uh, Jen, thank you very much for joining us on the MRA podcast. Um, we will talk to you soon. Thanks very much for having me, Steve. All right. We'll talk to you. This is Kerry Miller, the Vice President of Operations for the Massachusetts Restaurant Association, and this is What's Next. This is Kerry Miller, and this is What's Next. Hey, today on the podcast, we've got Matt Camilleri, the Managing Director of Real Food. Uh, we've been friends with Real Food for a long time uh, at the MRA. Uh, it's a premier hospitality strategy and design firm. It meets the strategic advisory, advisory objectives of the global food service industry, and it, and it covers like everything from hotels to clubs to restaurant. Matt is a 25-year veteran uh, of the hospitality industry. Uh, prior to joining Real Food in 2013, he was hospitality management with the Back Bay Restaurant Group. And then for, the, for those folks that have been around for a while, remember that was the premier group in Boston for the longest time. He managed F&B for boutique hotels and directed U.S. operations for dining in, now known as Grubhub. So I've got a pretty well-rounded resume. Uh, and that's why I, Ed Doyle was brilliant enough to, to drag him in to help him run real food. Hey, welcome to the podcast, Matt. Thanks, Kerry. Great, great introduction. I'll ask Ed after nine years if that was such a great move for him. <laughs> you know, I, that's probably why he's on the airplane flying all over the planet right now. So he, <laughs> well, it's he just, good. 
good spot for him. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah, again, the fact that that he can unplug and just go do the the stuff that requires him to be in Dubai or wherever the hell he he, he is, and have you manage your business for him is just that you know another feather in your cap, partner. So. Uh, you and the team over there, uh, uh, probably better than anyone, has seen the way the pandemic has affected design and processes, how restaurants uh, run. I mean, and kind of just from 50,000 feet up, what are some of the key yeah. changes that you're seeing, Matt? You know, really with the pandemic, as awful as it was for some, and, you know, it actually benefited some some operations. We have some clients that have, you know, tripled their sales in the last, you know, year and a half to two years. But I think with all, whether or not they were forced to shut down for a period of time or, you know, they, they did that willingly just for, you know, protect their staff um, from, from COVID, it really gave them an opportunity to, to, to right the ship of it. And when I say that, you know, that comes from my own, my own personal belief of, of being a restaurant operator is you have to have adaptability in, in, the, in the market. And it's one thing for you to start off with an idea for a concept and, and execute that idea really well, but you have to be able to know when you need to tweak, tweak your business um, to continue to meet, you know, to meet to the demands of, a, of, of the guest. And I think the shutdown for some people really, if they used it well enough, gave them a chance to reinvent themselves. Um, you know, COVID really forced the consumer, the guest to be okay with certain things. You, you, you no longer needed to carry the loss leaders on the menu. You, you could really, re-engineer your menu to to really give you the, the the best profitability that you could possibly get without having all the fluff that you needed to have before because it was important to your concept or you were scared of that someone would be upset that you changed the menu it really gave you a chance to go dark for a bit and come out you know swinging and have you know yourself really to thank for your 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 reinvention of your menu for top line possibilities you know increasing top line but of course increasing profitability and with that, you know, if you're just thinking about re-engineering re your menu, you're talking about design changes, you know, and, and a lot of that came with enlarging takeout areas to, to do higher volume for, for off-premise sales. You know, that, that goes from just being able to package the food quickly and efficiently, and that, came, that went to adding technology or, or equipment into the kitchen. Um, and also to, to, to incorporate contactless service, you know, whether that was curbside or, or space within the front of the restaurant that people could just you know, they could order their menu online and then come in and pick it up without talking to anybody. And that's just become the norm. And that's not going to go away at this point. So I think people who were against delivery takeout from their, from their, from their restaurants now have to be open to it because they need to be able to increase their opportunities for other streams of revenue. And yeah, I'm going to tell you, it's huge profitability and off-premise sales. And if you could do the volume on it, you can decrease labor inside inside the restaurant, which we all know is that there's a labor shortage, and that really gives you you know your ability to to increase profits. And that's obviously people were always trying to make a profit in the beginning, but now with less staff and and less volume, every 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 bit of sales counts. Yeah, you you hit it on the head about the innovation and the resiliency of the of, of the, uh, the the industry we work with and the people that work in this industry. I mean, better than yeah. I mean, talk about the perfect storm of things to figure out, right? You, mm -hmm. you know, first of all, you can't have people in your restaurant, uh, and, and you've got to, and 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 you know, even before the pandemic, the Applebee's and the Chili's of the world, while they were doing, think they were doing good at ten percent out the door, they were planning to go to twenty percent, and all of a sudden the pandemic hits, and they're you know everybody, even the folks that didn't do uh, off-premise had to do, had to just to survive. And, and I think it's probably settled in around 30% now, right? Well, yeah, to use another example, you look at Chipotle and 2019, their 
their virtual or online sales was 19% of their overall top line. And fast forward to today, and they're well over 50% with, I, I, I can't even, I don't even know the number, but with a, a huge increase in, in just top line itself. So increasing top line with basically an online platform with using incremental labor inside your restaurant and not having to increase it because you have, you're just servicing more tables or more people inside your space. It just leads to an increased profit at a, you know, at a stream rate. So. So what do you see? And, and again, I've got my own opinions on it um, as far as what the industry is going to shake out as, but I mean, if you're kind of looking at kind of the big, uh, the big chunks that are going to happen moving forward, um, I mean, are we going to see, are we going to see casual dining go the way of fast casual? I, I don't know if it's ever just going to just go away. Um, you, you are going to see a modified service and, and whatever, whatever the name of that service is going to come out to be. I, I don't think you're ever going to get away with table service. I think that's an important you know, touch point and in in an important piece of, of many con- concepts out there. I, I think you're going to see the incorporation of fast casual and quick service into those full service environments. You know, it's, it's going to become norm that you have to outfit your kitchen with some technology, whether it be, you know, from a production standpoint in combi ovens or, um, you know, or uh, any sort of efficiencies when it comes to fryolators that self-filter themselves. Anything that you can save time, you can limit waste, you can extend the life of, you know, your fryolator oil with, you know, frequent filtering. Um, but you can also do large batch protein cooking in combi ovens and that limits waste. It increases uh, uh the, the output of your labor that you do have inside the building. So you're, you're prepping less and you're spending more time on just, you know, plating up, you're plating up the menu. Um, and again, anytime that you can cut labor out of the kitchen, I mean, even pre pandemic, we were designing kitchens to be smaller, more efficient, less equipment, but more expensive equipment because, you know, we were seeing a push to, to do more with less, you know, and that is square footage and with bodies. So, you know, our goal even pre pandemic was to design a kitchen with, you know, one to one and a half less bodies. Yeah, I mean, you know it yourself how much that equates year over year in terms of return oh. on your investment. Oh, and the tough part was, the tough part was before the pandemic was people didn't want to spend the money on that equipment because yes, that combi oven was four times what you typically pay for a convection oven. And that was a hard thing to people to get over because, you know, budgets are a budget for a reason. And they had a tough time really kind of seeing the return, even though it was clearly on paper, but without actually doing it at one point, it was tough to kind of to, to swallow that at, at, when you're starting up, especially with unit one, if, if you're just trying to get one concept off the ground. But pandemic has really kind of forced people to realize that they need to do things differently and more efficiently. I mean, you nailed it up front, man. I mean, you think about the the rest the menu growth that restaurants, they were so last, last days ago, plus they felt they had to put all things on the menu to to, to please all people. Right. Yeah. And you see these menus that are like five pages long and, 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 the, and, and you're carrying inventories of $20,000 plus of stuff yeah. that you may sell, you know, four or five items on and, the, right. and then get to throughput. Right. Uh, you have to <clears throat> you're working <clears throat> with limited people and you, and you have to put as many customers through the, through the business as you possibly can. In the past it was, you know, butts and seats, but now the throughput is like on like multiple levels. Right. Yep. So yep. marginalizing what you have on your menu to keep a uh, streamlined process and then putting the equipment in place to get it out the door. And, and, I, and I think that the consumer appetite, and no, no pun intended, is there for, uh, you know, previously they weren't. They wanted more selections. They wanted more choice. They wanted a minute to sit there and, and look at the menu for, for an extended period of time because it was part of the experience and understanding they could try new things. But small menus, you know, it's something I've always told 
yeah, it's something I always do for myself, but also I told uh, many of our clients, just put the, just make the menu as big as you, as, 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 as the number of items that you do really well, everything needs to be a home run. It needs to be a home run from, from just from the concept of the menu item, but also from a profitability standpoint, you know, again, ditch the lost leaders, ditch the things that you don't make, you know, the highest margin on and just get rid of it, you know, and just, and the consumer is going to be happy. As you see, they're just happy. People are open. They're happy. They can get takeout food. They're happy. They still have that convenience, you know, and add off, you know, off premise or takeout cocktails. I mean, that exploded when, you know, when, when cities were, were starting to write that in and, and, and let that be a thing. And I can tell you, even, you know, living up here in Burlington, Vermont, they're going to keep it. I don't think they're ever going to go back to not having um, cocktails to go. It, they, they saw that from a, from a profitability standpoint, from the tax aspect of it. Yep. And they, they realized that, you know, people actually were responsible and they weren't just taking the cocktails and driving down the road. They actually could handle it. I think that was a scary thing. Was, you know, it's kind of, that's why very, cities, cities vary on, on their takeout capabilities, you know, especially for packaged goods. So it's, I think it's, you know, people, and from restaurants point of view, you could still get a full, a full check. You're getting cocktails, a couple, you know, a couple cocktails per person. You're getting an appetizer. You're getting, you're getting the entree. So your check average is still maintaining a decent, a decent level. Yeah. yeah. I think there's something about living in the North that even, even if you get cocktails to go, that we've got that guilt that rides with us no matter, no matter what. So no matter, <laughs> so no matter how, yeah. how bad they freed up. Now you get down, if you get down into vacation land like that, it's cocktails, yeah. cocktails a go-go. Um, yeah. So, all right, we talked about the back of those, and 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 I, I, I'm we're seeing a, an incredible uh, shift at the front of the front of the house. I mean, um, and again, I I worked at Applebee's back in the day and, and had a mm-hmm. had a great run there, and, and appreciate a lot of things that I learned learned there. But if I go into a restaurant, I don't need a, a, a server coming up and telling me the twelve steps of service. And I'll tell you, the, I'll tell you the people that that are younger than me, uh, which is most of the population now. Um, could care less about uh, having that, and if they can order from what's on their hand, uh, out of their hand, you know, bring your own device um, kind of thought process. And you look at places like Bar Taco that's gone to Indine, and there's no servers. You got a you got a QR code, and you've got your device, and you want another margarita, man? You click it on your phone, and it shows up at your table. Yeah, that it's it's again doing more with less and uh, we noticed a few operators ones a couple a, a couple of ones that we worked with locally specifically b- before the pandemic and they they saw they saw the shift of of staff or the shortage of staff and they were really looking at it going okay well if the minimum wage is going to go up like rightly it should how do i continue to maintain my profitability you know so how do we do how do we do group service you know rather than like you said a server walking up introducing yourself and doing the 12 steps of service it's it's more of just the maintenance room it's it's just the maintenance of the room and making sure people are enjoying their experience but to yourself people have their phone they can qr code scan get a menu take a look at it they can order it it gets delivered to their table I mean, payments easy. You, you talk about the efficiencies, and everybody can do that now. I think the worry was that there's a, there, you know, there's part of our culture that would not adapt to that, but COVID forced everybody to be able to order from an iPad. I'll tell you, there, there are boomers out there that don't want to have a conversation with somebody, right? They yep. they're mm-hmm. so comfortable with ordering from their phone right now, and they then they've learned how to do it. That uh, that's the that's the way of the world uh, moving forward. I mean, I think if you go to a Davio's or 
you know, Del Fresco's or something like that, you still want to have somebody give you the experience of, of great service, right? And mm -hmm. recommending things. But from there down, from fine and polished down, uh, I think it's the service model is going to have to change. Oh, I agree. I think I think you're going to see table service reinvent itself, and and like the the way of the twelve steps of service is going to go away. Well, you know, you just you don't have the ability to staff to those to those types of levels. But I also think from an efficiency standpoint, you know, from a from a back end reporting, and you know, do you just think about ticket management and and payment management? You know, everything in a everything in a cloud, everything ordered via you know automatically imported into into your POS, and people can pay right away. There's tracking. There's no, you know, there's no starting a tab anymore. You know, by giving somebody your name, there's you know, it, it's it the transaction is starts the second you walk into the door almost at this point. Yeah. Um, there's a few projects that we're working on for food halls that are literally going to open in in a year and a half from now, and they're going to ditch the counter model model completely. You know, yep. they're not going to have anybody queuing up at the counter to to order from the burger stall or the pizza stall, or you know, they they're just going to make everything contactless. They're going to make it through the app, and that means you can order from anywhere on the resort. And I think there's a collection point, just like everybody's been used to for the last year and a half. It's just going to get more and more widely accepted. I couldn't so, agree. I couldn't agree yeah. more. The freight trains on the tracks is the POS, the new POS group out of Worcester, that yeah. is a BYOD uh, POS system. I mean, mm -hmm. so anybody, servers, customers, cooks. I mean, it all. You, they don't have to have you have any hard hardware. And I think they're early on, but it's, it's again, it's a freight train on the tracks. So, yeah. Hey, listen, yeah. Uh, you and I could chat about this. Is the thing <laughs> Bob loves only lets me, lets me talk for a little limited amount of time because it gives him more time to talk. Um, so I'm going to have, have to wrap it up, but first thing before I get off, if, if it was your money right now, right. And you were you know, up in Burlington, Vermont, you're going to pop a place in Burlington, Vermont. What, what would you do? Oh, you didn't give me even a choice to find a different destination. What if I want to get out of the new England weather here, you know? Uh, um, right, I'll even let you pick the destination, but if it was me, perfect. if you're, if there's sand underneath me, it's going to be a beach bar. That's exactly what I was going to right. a little beach bar with a small kitchen. Again, small, small team, close knit team, very profitable, very fun. Um, and, and, you know, controllable hours. And I think that's something we didn't talk about either. It's, it's the acceptance of, of limited hours yeah, now. And I, I think, you know, again, that's something we could talk about forever as well too. So, but yeah, definitely something with controllable hours. Cause I think quality of life is important for, for everybody, including everybody that works in the hospitality industry. I see some operators going that route right now. You do too. That's saying, look, I'm not going to be open seven days a week, 24 hours a day. I'm going to have a life for yeah, myself. Exactly. Time. Can't do it. All right. Well, before I close off, I'm going to say this to anybody that listens to this, this, this show is there are a lot of people that get in this business and they get face down and, and they look up and five years later, they're struggling to flow through dollars and um, keep the place, you know, maintain. So if you go and spend some time with these guys at Real Food before you get to that point and you have them help you design it, not just for the the way it looks or the way it feels, but the way it works and, and the philosophies and the menus behind it, you'll be way ahead of it and you can pick your extra strategy five years out and actually make some money on the damn thing. So uh, Real Food... Uh, uh, they're on the web. What's the, what's the webpage, Matt? Uh, rfhd.com. It's real food hospitality strategy design. Uh, we're located in Newton, Newton, Mass. Yeah. And Matt's, Matt's available. Uh, he answers his phone and he gets back to, you. he's got projects going on, but I, I'll tell you, these guys always get back to us no matter what they've got going on. So I appreciate you. Appreciate Ed, you know, uh, you know, allowing you to shave some time off here out of your day and, and spend some time with us. And, uh, I, I look forward to, 
seeing you back in Boston here in, in the near future. Thanks, Gary. Appreciate the support. Take care. You've been listening to Together We Win, the Massachusetts Restaurant Association podcast. Produced by the Massachusetts Restaurant Association in partnership with Image Unlimited Communications and Red 13 Studios. For more information on the Massachusetts Restaurant Association, please visit themassrest.org. Thank you. You've been listening to Together We Win, the MRA podcast. For any information on this podcast or any other episode, visit us at our website, themassrest.org.